All right. Hello, this is Josh Buck with the Buck on Business podcast. On today's podcast, we have the opportunity to have a gentleman uh, who I guess we probably met maybe a year, year and a half or so ago in a uh, out, uh, I think we were out west at, a, at an event. And um, I think maybe uh, of, uh, I think all the people in that room, um, you've been an extra, you were an extra special blessing to me because you kind of struck up a little bit of a, went out of your way to strike up a conversation with my son. And, um, and that was a, that kind of was extra special to me and it kind of spoke to the heart of the uh, type of an individual that you are. Um, so uh, his name's Jack Krupe. Uh, so I'll uh, allow for him to tell a little bit of his story here in just a moment. I'll read his bio and then we'll kind of get right into it. What we're going to try to do today on the podcast is kind of just give a little bit of a primer, not really go into uh, a deep dive, but a little bit of a primer on, on funds. And uh, Jack uh, has the opportunity. Uh, he does have different funds. Uh, he helps uh, as far as um, uh, getting gathering together investors and finding places to where they can uh, place their capital. And we'll talk a little bit about through uh, through if you have a questions in regards to you know what is a fund, we'll try to uh, address that just a little bit. Um, or you know or maybe you're you're in funds and kind of maybe looking for another opportunity. Jack would be the perfect person to connect with. So uh, Jack Krupe, Jack has uh, been investing both in real estate and distressed debt since 2001. He has built long-term relationships with experienced real estate developers, sponsors, and syndicators over his 20-year career. Jack leveraged the 2008 financial crisis as part of a private equity fund that yielded impressive returns off distressed and restructured debt. He repositioned properties as well as modified and restructured restructured loan for borrowers. In 2014, Jack entered into a partnership with a large private equity fund and led the the asset management arm of the firm that made over $3 billion in purchases of non-performing and re-performing mortgage debt between 2015 and 2019. As, uh, as an entrepreneur by nature, Jack decided to start JK Asset Management to focus on alternative assets such as value-add multifamily real estate. He then launched the JKAM Diversified Real Estate Fund in September 2000 and is launching a second diversified fund in 2022. As I went through and I read this bio um, that you kind of have out there publicly, I, one thing I thought was really interesting is you kind of got your career started in a place that we may be finding ourselves here uh, uh, coming up. Um, we're already starting to see interest rates come uh, go up. I think we're really going to start to see some issues in the real estate market in uh, in coming months. And I think uh, it's kind of the perfect timing maybe to have you on at this point, um, since uh, we may be facing here in the coming uh, months and uh, in the coming years, something similar, not exactly to 2008, uh, but we're going to start to see, uh, I think, some uh, correction in the real estate market. We may end up seeing a situation to where uh, we make up with, uh, with some mortgage issues like we did back at that time frame as well. And you bring a lot of experience as it relates to how to handle and work through that crisis. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit in this podcast. So first of all, Jack, let's get, kind of get to know you a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, from maybe from uh, if there's maybe an aspect of your childhood, but maybe from your from your college uh, time uh, and then through your career path that kind of brought you to where you're at today. Sure. Great. And Josh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Um, so, uh, you know, I always had a little bit of an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial flair, um, actually thought I was going to go more into the IT industry. So I have a degree in information technology. And when I graduated in 2001, it was the dot-com crash. So I um, was fortunate to have a job, had a decent W-2 income, but it wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be a few years earlier where people were getting flown all over the world, Silicon Valley. Um, so... Um, it was sort of the dot-com crash, but the really the start of the first real estate boom. So um, I bought a book about no money down real estate and called my landlord. You know, I was still living in Rochester after college, even though I'm from the New York City area. And within a month, I bought a house, no money down. 
And within another year, I'd owned four or five of them and really lived that infomercial dream from 2002 or three till um, the crash of, of 2007, 2008. So really cut my teeth on traditional real estate, uh, fix and flip. I had gotten my real estate broker's license, did some wholesaling and really all the retail kind of initial entry-level real estate strategies I did in my early to mid twenties. And uh, during the crash, um, private equity funds needed real estate people. They were buying hundreds of thousands of non-performing mortgages at the start of the foreclosure crisis. And they needed people like me. I never thought I was going to be a Wall Street guy. And, uh, but they needed the, the kind of main street type real estate brokers who were on the other side buying foreclosures to, to really represent the, the funds and the banks to ensure that they you know, could, could handle these mortgages and, and had someone that, that understood the, the retail side of the investor market. So it was really a, a kind of a crazy way to kind of back into private equity. And so, uh, so from there, you were actually kind of doing this for, you know, for someone else. Uh, so essentially, what did you know? Why did you end up deciding just to kind of start your own funds to kind of transition from working from somebody else or partnering with someone else into this to kind of just starting up your own company and doing this on your own? Sure. sure. So there's a couple different levels of that. I worked for a firm for about two years, then went on my own for the first time. And uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneurial person at heart. Uh, end of the day, I saw the money that was being made by some of the other investors that were buying loans from this company. So um, decided I wanted to, to go on my own and try to do that. So um, I did that for about a year on my own and then partnered with a family office. And then we, you know, we just a few two to $5 million buying, buying loans, doing loan modifications. Our goal was always to help the borrower stay in their house if they could. And many people got caught in the foreclosure crisis where they lost their job and they have a new job they could afford to pay, but they couldn't afford to maybe pay $20,000 to reinstate the entire loan, but they could easily afford a mortgage payment. So we worked out a lot of win-win scenarios and we would modify the loans. And once the loan was modified, after about a year, you could sell the loan back to Wall Street at a profit. And it turned out we generally made more money flipping the loans than we did actually foreclosing. And in some situations we had to, unfortunately, because... 2005, 2006, there was a lot of people who probably never should have got a mortgage. There was a lot of programs that, uh, you know, were really borderline fraudulent or in some cases fraudulent. So uh, that was you know, one of the unfortunate causes of the financial crisis. So, um, you know, went from, you know, my own small firm to partnering with a family office to partnering with a large private equity fund that was looking to, to deploy capital into the, into the space. So never really expected to be involved with a billion dollar type of, uh, of fund. It just sort of, you know, came together through, you know, just our being active in the space and uh, being in New York City. It doesn't, didn't hurt just because it's just the, you know, the, the center of, of the finance world. So, you know, it was just fortunate to, you know, find the right people to partner with and, you know, bought over $3 billion worth of loans. So um, it was, uh, you know, amazing experience, but sometimes the grass isn't always greener, you know, as you get to a certain size and scale and infrastructure you know, it becomes, you know, the, the compliance gets more costly and it, it you know, becomes, you know, you kind of, you can create a monster in some cases. So if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, sometimes you get too big to it, to a size where you, you, you kind of can create yourself a trap if, if you're not careful. What type of uh, assets would generally someone put into a fund? And then what type of assets? I know you have alternative investments in your company name. 
So when we think of kind of traditional investments. I think a lot of times when you think of a fund, they're thinking, you know, they're either it's a bunch of maybe single family homes or maybe it's commercial properties or it's hotels or, or whatever. But um, so you kind of think of those more traditional types of investing. And then um, what are some of the things that you're doing and maybe either maybe instead of that or in addition to those types of uh, to those types of funds? And maybe we should take a step back and kind of maybe just give real high level, you know, what exactly is a fund? Sure. And there's multiple types of funds, but uh, our fund is essentially it's just a company that is set up specifically for a purpose of investing. And there's, you know, an operating agreement. And then there's generally a disclosure form called a private placement that just describes really the business plan of the fund. And uh, there's many different structures, but most funds, at least uh, the private funds, the syndications, the, the, yeah, the types of, of deals I'm involved with are generally just formed as an LLC. And, uh, you know, when someone invests, they become a member of, of the LLC. Um, as you get larger, much larger, there's other structures like REITs. Um, it's more of a tax treatment thing. Uh, but uh, but yeah, really, just think of it as a private company. Uh, it's, the, it's the simplest way to, uh, to think about it. And, you know, our funds are all structured as LLCs. And uh, if people invest and partner with us, they, they truly become a partner. They're a member, a member of the, the company alongside of us. Um, to, you know, to your, so it's a, so it's basically it's a way for um, either individuals or entities to be able to come into an investment uh, without buying the whole investment essentially. So they can come in and maybe buy a portion of this portfolio or a portion of this property, whatever the case may be, uh, through ownership of that LLC. So it's almost like a pooling type of an effect. Exactly, exactly. That's a very very simple and great way to put it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was surprisingly. A little simpler than I thought, and we'll get into kind of how we put this together. But uh, yeah, it's gotten a lot easier in recent years to uh, you know to structure funds and put things together. You know, these used to be sort of backroom country club type opportunities that were hard to, you know hard to find unless you had a lot of access. But uh, you know, with uh, some you know some rule changes and, and the internet, I believe it was 2012, they really changed the regulations that it really made private funds a lot more accessible to to the general public. And I think it's a great thing because, you know, largely the, 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 more, the more niche the opportunity is, the less it's publicly advertised all over CNBC or, you know, or on the news. The, usually the returns are, are better for sort of smaller, more, more niche opportunities than they are for like the widest publicly available stocks or mutual funds. So um, what type of investments are you putting into your, into your funds? Yeah, so we, we focus over the last few years, we focus very heavily on uh, multifamily apartment buildings. Um, you know, what I've learned over time is that in many cases, bigger is better. Um, when we were in the mortgage business, it was, you know, again, we, have, we would buy 30,000 loans in some cases. And, uh, you know, once you have a size and scale, it's easier to operate. So um, I'd invested when I was in my 20s in single family, two family houses. And, uh, you know, as I started investing more in apartment buildings, when I lived in New York, we were investing in buildings in North and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Um, once you're above 100 units, um, those, those apartment buildings have generally they support on-site management. So it's really like owning a business. And at that size and scale, you have a lot less headaches. Um, you're not getting the call at two in the morning about a, a clogged toilet because you have an on-site manager or superintendent versus when I'd had, you know, a bunch of single family houses, I would get those calls. And, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it, it becomes, if you're not careful, you can create yourself, uh, you know, a, a job you hate. Um, so we focus on apartment buildings and what we generally focus on are, are buildings that are fully occupied or 90% occupied. 
you know, not, not really, you know, in distress, if you will, but they're, they're old and tired. So we call it a value add strategy. And uh, if you buy an apartment building that was say built in the seventies or eighties and, you know, the prior owner, you know, it was clean, it's a decent building, but they weren't really renovating the kitchens, the bathrooms that, you know, you have the same cabinets from the eighties. And what we will do is we'll come in and we'll update the flooring, the kitchens and the bathrooms, and just really pretty up the units, um, maybe spend five to, to 10,000 per unit. And what we're finding is there's a shortage of quality housing, especially in, you know, the middle class uh, because of the cost of construction and, you know, very few workforce housing buildings are being built at this point. Most of the new construction is very high end. So we're finding there's a huge demand for very high quality, but middle-class apartments. And that's a, a large part of our focus. And it's been very successful over recent years. Uh, we also like mobile home parks, self-storage, uh, private lending, sometimes referred to as hard money lending. And, um, you know, some industrial, industrial's a, a a great and growing area. And I think with some of the things going on in the world, we're very bullish on industrial because I, you know, my gut says there's going to be some more onshoring of, of manufacturing in the coming years with price of oil, with some of the geopolitical uh, issues with COVID, with supply chains. So, um, you know, those, those are the key areas of uh, that, that we've tended to focus on over the last few years. Interesting. So it sounds like you have a pretty diverse as far as options out there, as far as somebody wants to come in and invest in a fund, as far as uh, the direction they're wanting to go. And we'll get a little bit into the tax side and maybe the, the reasons why you may want to go one direction or another here in a moment. Um, but why would someone uh, want to go into a fund versus just simply going after it themselves? I mean, we have we have clients at the firm level, they go out and they buy apartment complexes on uh, on their own. But most of them would choose to go this direction. But from what you've seen, why would someone rather go and invest in a fund versus trying to go and and uh, just kind of do it themselves and maybe keep more of the profits in theory for themselves. Yeah, and look, it depends on sort of the personality type. There are certain people that really like to be hands-on and dive in and do things themselves. But you know, I've cautioned a lot of investors that it's not always as easy as you think. And if you have a successful business or you're a hiring professional, in some cases, it's not worth your time to try to do things yourself because it can be it can be a lot more hassle than than you think, especially if you're a one man show and you're, you're you're just trying to juggle a full time job uh, or a full time business you run plus uh, you know, plus investing. Um, the other thing is is deal flow. I mean, we're we're full time in the business of reviewing deals, uh, working with multiple partners. So, you know, we have access to a lot of opportunities that that cross cross our uh, our desks and. You know, our, our position, because we're a more diversified fund and we invest with a number of very successful, very experienced operators, uh, we're often investing with the group that might get the off-market deal, um, the really distressed deal, or, or they're getting the last look where because they own other buildings in the area, they're, they have the reputation that's going to get them a deal over someone else. So, you know, often, you know, anything you may sacrifice on having to, you know, split a portion of the profits or have any, any sort of fund fees, you know, our goal is to, you know, to surpass that by just generating better returns and having a higher, uh, a higher quality opportunity uh, just through, through our network. And because we spend, you know, full time between traveling to different masterminds, networking with, with various partners and operators, uh, getting, you know, the most up-to-date financial uh, updates on markets and what's happening in, in the real estate market and in the financial markets. So, um, you know, it's really, you're paying for our, our network you know, you're partnering with us because of our network, our access, our own expertise. And, you know, in, in, in our case specifically, I also have a lot of my own money 
uh, in, in the fund. I, I really created the fund around my own personal investing once I, once I left Wall Street. So, um, you know, I, I look at ourselves, I look at, I look at our business as really a partnership more, more, than, more than a company. So uh, somebody wants to go in and invest in a fund. Are there certain basically qualifiers that they, they have to have to get in, maybe by amount of money that they have to put into the fund or the amount of money they make? Uh, I know we hear you know these terms as far as accredited, non-accredited. Uh, so, so what are some of the qualifiers as far as um, both working with you or maybe in general, uh, if people are looking uh, as far as investing into a fund? Sure. Yes, uh, we we have we are only able to accept accredited investors, and it's uh, it's something through the uh, through the government and through the SEC, where if you do advertising, you have to prove that your investor you have to get some type of proof from your investor that they're accredited. And what that means is, if you're single, it means you make at least two hundred thousand a year for the last two years. If you're married, uh, it's three hundred thousand combined, uh, or have a, a one million dollar net worth. And uh, that excludes the primary residence, but it includes everything else, whether it's investment properties, uh, even 401k IRAs, other assets, a business you own. And it, it's a very minimal process. I mean, for us, we usually just ask the investor to have their, their CPA send a, a letter that they meet the, uh, meet the criteria. Um, we even use a third party to verify because I, I don't need to look at tax returns. I don't need to, to you know, to see anything else from, from our investors other than that the uh, you know, they're, they're, they're qualified. So um, we make it very, very simple and straightforward. And, uh, you know, a majority of, uh, of our, of, of our investors haven't, haven't had an issue. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, those that are sort of up and coming and trying to, to become accredited, there's, there's a lot less options. There's a few that are what's called a reg A. There's a few online ones that it's almost like being a public company at that point, the amount of legal work to, to accept non-accredited investors is, is daunting. So it just, it wasn't, we found it wasn't really worth uh, just worth the legal fees for for us to go through, um, but it's still the the laws changed in 2012 that made it a lot easier to for for investors to find these types of private deals. So it's still been a large improvement over the last 10 years compared to you know what it had been in history before. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I want to point out because of course as a as an accounting firm here we of course we put out accreditation letters uh, quite often. I would say there's probably you know uh, we're, we're probably a couple of them a week, at least that we, that we send out for our, uh, you know, for our clients. And it's kind of one of those things, sometimes people want to, you know, they feel like they're offended. Oh, you don't want my money or whatever the case may be, but kind of realize that all these rules are dictated by the, uh, by the SEC. And so when, uh, when a fund, when you have a fund manager dealing with a fund, that type of thing, and they ask that type of a question, it's because they essentially have to remain compliant on their end and I get into reg A and reg B and, you know, and the 506 and all these different numbers out there that confuse people uh, that's not necessarily important for the, uh, for the investor, but uh, there's a lot that goes on out there um, and just kind of want to be aware that um, you really kind of do need to meet these uh, minimum thresholds. And uh, of course, Jack spoke to, you know, to what they are, $200,000 uh, the last two years, if you're single, $300,000 just to gross income, uh, if you're married or you have a million dollars uh, as far as net worth, and that does uh, exclude your primary residence. So if you have a lot of equity in your business, for example, um, or if you have investment properties currently, <clears throat> that maybe would appraise out uh, in excess of that, unless your debt, you have enough equity there to where you'd hit that million dollar threshold. And it is a pretty low bar, I think nowadays, especially uh, for, uh, for someone to, uh, um, for someone to hit. So 
Now, what are, um, uh, so what are the potential tax benefits? And I'm going to, before I put this out there, we're, um, we're, we are not giving tax advice here. So we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, just generally just to have a conversation a little bit about uh, some of the potential tax benefits. You may or may not be able to reap these benefits as something definitely you'll want to talk to your own, uh, to your own accountant and see whether or not uh, this particular, uh, particular situation um, would apply to you. Um, but as we kind of talk about this, Jack, I know that, um, uh, that, you know, people come to you for different reasons, but why for maybe for tax reasons, this is one of the primary reasons that we see that people want to get into, uh, get into investing in funds. But there are other reasons we can talk about as well. But what are some of the potential tax benefits that you've seen out there that, uh, that people uh, may reap when they, uh, when they get into investing into a fund? Yeah, I mean, the tax benefits are really amazing for, for these types of structured funds. And, and I, I, I really got into the syndication and these private funds while I was still working in New York uh, uh, in my prior business, because in New York City, when you factor in the federal government, the state government and the city, I was paying 50% tax rate. And I was looking for, for investments that were, were tax efficient. So uh, the number one thing is a majority of the income that you get, whether it's a monthly or quarterly distribution, is generally deferred completely by depreciation. So real estate is one of the few assets that actually goes up in value, but on the, on the first year especially, you could take a significant amount of depreciation benefits. So you show a loss on paper, and it's one of the few assets that you show a loss on paper, but it actually goes up. If you do it on a truck or other things, most of the time you are eventually taking the loss. And with larger real estate, um, the, probably the, the biggest differentiator for doing a 100-unit building as a partner versus just buying a single family house is you can accelerate the depreciation. So on, on these hundred to 200 unit buildings, it's not out of the question that we receive almost a hundred percent of our investment as a, as a paper loss year one. And so you invest a hundred thousand, we've had deals where we got 98,000 as a loss right away in the first year. And if you're able to take advantage of those tax benefits, you, you might be saving between 37 and and 50% in taxes that, that first year. Now, there, there's some limitations that you said, this is not exactly taxes, this is not official tax advice, but um, the pe people that are truly the best capable of taking advantage of this are real estate professionals. That means if you're a real estate broker or your spouse is a real estate broker, or if you own enough properties that you're actively managing and you spend, I believe it's 750 hours a year, managing properties, then you're considered a real estate professional and you're able to take all of those losses immediately that year. If you're a high W-2 income earner and neither you or your spouse is a professional, let's say you're just a doctor, you're a lawyer, um, you're limited to the amount of passive losses you can take. So you can't offset your, your active full-time salary, but you can offset any other passive income. So if you own other properties, if you sell one property for a profit, then you reinvest into a fund, you can often offset the income from that other property by, by taking the tax losses. Uh, that, that's the main one that, uh, that most of our investors are excited about taking advantage of. And there's other uh, niches like 1031 exchange, ways to sell one property and, and buy another one. But the depreciation is really, really powerful as far as you know getting current cash flow, but um, not having to pay tax. Even if you are that high earning person, if you're getting paid the rent every year, you're still showing a loss on paper. So the rent you're receiving is essentially tax deferred until largely until the property sells. So the, and someone out there may have the question regards, well, how in the world does that work that, you know, you go through and you could take all this accelerated depreciation and 
Uh, so a few years ago, of course, there was um, uh, put into the code the ability to be able to essentially take an asset and break it down into a smaller components. And so uh, kind of go through and not to get into a deep dive here on depreciation, but uh, normally a commercial property would be depreciated for tax purposes over 39 years, a residential property over 27 and a half years. Um, but there are certain aspects of that property. So it may be cabinets, it may be carpeting, it may be flooring, uh, that type of thing that would, that would be allowed to be depreciated over a shorter timeline. And that might be five years, seven years, or 15 years. And so if, it if, a, if a piece of that property fits within one of those uh, five-year, seven-year, 15-year timelines for depreciation purposes, uh, currently the tax code allows for 100% of that depreciation to be taken in year one. And so, uh, and, and not to get, once again, into a deep dive here on depreciation recapture, that type of thing, uh, generally there's a timeline that people would want, need to stay into this uh, in order for it to really make sense. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? So somebody's wanting to go in and say, okay, I want to get in, but I want to get out. I want to get my money back in year two. Um, what is ideally the timeline? I mean, do you require somebody to stay in the fund for a certain amount of time? And then from a practical end, uh, how long should someone stay into a fund before they decide to sell their position? Sure. So um, yeah, our, our funds and a majority of, you know, we have a fund and we also have some options to go deal by deal, but largely I would call them closed end funds. These are not funds that you can just click a button and sell and, and have liquidity. You're usually in until the property sells. So that could be in general between three and seven years, depending on the project. And for the fund, it tends to be about the same because it's blended between projects that are three to seven years. Um, so, you know, we do tell investors, you know, don't put in money that you're going to need to with, you know, they're expecting to withdraw in six months. That's part of the reason there's better tax benefits and, and that largely the returns are superior to what traditional average eight to 10% that Wall Street has made over the last 50 years, uh, because you are sacrificing that, that one aspect, which is liquidity. Um, so it's generally a five to seven year play. Um, one of the, the cool, uh, things that can happen is if, if the property is refinanced, that's not a taxable event. So there's been many situations where there's you know, the properties, the values improved, we've renovated a bunch of apartments, uh, done that value add that I that I've mentioned, uh, keep mentioning uh, in, in this in this talk. And um, we've had situations where sometimes half to in, in rare situations, even all money can be returned, and we still own the asset. And that's completely a tax-free event. The, the tax, the recapture that you mentioned only happens at the property sale. And, um, you know, it's, it's worked really well for, you know, a lot of our investors are, you know, in their 50s and are maybe eyeing retirement in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, the, the, the great thing about recapture is if you're, if you know in five to seven years, you may be slowing down or even moving to a lower tax state, um, if you're deferring taxes at 37 to 50%, and then in five years, you may, you know, maybe one, you know, you or your spouse retires and your tax brackets now 12% because you're going to make a lot less money. You know, it could be a pretty powerful tool for, for tax deferral and, and, and tax savings. So, so uh, what other, what other reasons may besides tax benefits would someone get in? And I, I think that you probably touched on most of this here, but you talk about appreciation, you know, in um, a little bit about the return. So if somebody wants to get into a fund, um, do you always in, in your funds go through and either do cost segs or break those down into smaller components? Or do you have funds there that you put together and say, okay, this is for someone who's not necessarily looking for the tax benefit. They're just looking for the appreciation and the ROI. Um, yeah, yeah. We have a combination of options. We even have a private lending fund, which uh, you know doesn't really have the tax benefits, but it provides just consistent monthly cash flow. 
and uh, that has actually a little more liquidity. Um, so, you know, it's a combination of cash flow and growth. Um, yes, yeah, certain projects don't have as much current cash flow because of the, you know, the cost of the renovations, whereas other ones are more just mailbox money where it's, you know, it's bought, it's stabilized, you know, you just get a, get a check every month or every quarter. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we pretty much, we want to be able to cater to a majority of investor needs. Um, you know, some, some people just want growth and appreciation. Others really want that cash flow and that mailbox money. Um, some care about taxes, others, uh, you know, a lot of people are using self-directed IRAs as well. Um, there's a number of, of groups. And just so, so to be clear, if you're working currently and you have your 401k with your company, it's usually locked there. But if and when you leave that job, you have the option to roll that IRA over. And many people might roll it over to Fidelity or their, whatever their broker is. But there's a number of niche custodians that will allow you to take control of your IRA. And then you can decide to invest it in real estate. You can do private lending. You can, you can still do stocks if you want to. But the self-directed IRA market is very, very, very powerful. And I know a number of our investors have taken advantage uh, of that. It's a very powerful way to control your, you know, have control of your retirement account and, uh, you know, pull it out of, of, of Wall Street. Uh, you know, to go to your initial question, like some of the other benefits are, you know, the stock market, as we record this, is down over 20% for the year. Uh, the volatility in, uh, you know, in real estate is, you know, is significantly less. Um, you know, I say that I've lived through 2008. I know anything can happen, but I, I do think that was sort of a, a, a once in a, probably our lifetimes type perfect storm of crash. Things are to me a lot different this time. We didn't have loose lending standards that we did previously. Um, real estate's a hedge against inflation as well. Um, you know, many of our, our loans were locked in with, with low rates. And if, if inflation does continue at five, 10, uh, whatever percent it is a year, you know, we're, we're rents will continue to have to, to go up. Um, the values, you know, will, will go up and, uh, the debt, you know, we're paying back debt at 3%, 4% in some cases, uh, that in five years that, that loan payment doesn't move until, you know, until the, until we have to sell the property. So, you know, that, those, those are most of the, you know, benefits is taxes, inflation, hedge appreciation, and not tied to the stock market as far as day-to-day volatility. And I think it's a powerful thing you mentioned there, and it's something else that uh, there are some people out there that don't realize that they can take literally to take their retirement account, and uh, if they are able to self-direct it, and so um, you may need a custodian. We had a we actually had a podcast guest on here a number of months ago that talked about how you can be your own custodian that type of thing. But really, you can take ownership of that money because a lot of people think you know, my four hundred one k, my my SEP, my Simple, whatever it is that I have, that um, the only thing I can do with that is invest in the stock market with it. And so I'm kind of stuck there, um, but that's not always the case. I mean, you can take that money, you can self-direct it, and you need some help. So you're going to need to have an accountant. And if you go to your financial advisor, they're probably going to, you know, push down this idea because they make benefit, you know, taking that money and putting it into the stock market. Um, so you want to make sure that you're aligned with people that kind of understand there are other things that you can do. Uh, and so to be able to take ownership of that money, uh, have a to work with a custodian uh, that uh, can help you self-direct it. And then you can go through and take those funds. So if you have $100,000, you have $250,000 in your retirement account, you're able to take that money and put it into a fund. Uh, it's not in the stock market, which is very, very volatile, and put it into a place to where most of the wealthiest people out there are invested in real estate. And so you go through, and of course, you are going to see in time, uh, generally, appreciation. In the short term, that may not be the case. We may see a correction, that type of thing. But if you're in it, 
three to five to seven plus years is, you know, it's going to rebound. Uh, you're going to see the appreciation. You're going to have in all probability an ROI higher than the stock market. Somebody else is paying that debt, essentially the, uh, the, the tenant. So they're paying the rents every month, uh, whatever the case may be there. That money is taken, uh, pays off the mortgage. You're seeing the appreciation. Um, it's, it was kind of a win-win, I think, for everyone that uh, that's involved. And of course, in this market environment, we're seeing younger people that prefer to rent over own. Uh, you talked earlier about uh, in the, earlier in the podcast, just from a from market end, uh, the, that uh, more individuals, younger individuals now, they're not necessarily looking to buy. Uh, they're 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 happier just to um, to rent a place, and that's where uh, someone like you can come in. Uh, you buy those properties, you get them, uh, you get them remodeled, and then uh, really just kind of help uh, the the overall market uh, in in far as directing some of the uh, some of the housing housing shortage that is out there. Jack, I usually when I'm kind of wrapping up a podcast, I uh, before we get into as far as how can people connect with you, um, I generally ask this question, uh, especially to those uh, who are entrepreneurs that we bring onto the podcast. So you've worked with a number of entrepreneurs uh, from those uh, basically in that startup phase to all to those running a seven, eight, nine, ten figure business. What are the top reasons that you've seen why a business owner uh, either succeeds or fails? Yeah, I mean. First things first, and this is sort of a, you know, kind of a business school cliche, but, you know, having a product market fit, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, a number of startup ideas where it's like, is there really a need for this? And that tends to happen. It happened a little bit in the dot-com crash. You know, it's been, you know, I've seen a bunch of random cryptocurrency pitches where it's like, okay, is this really needed? You could do this in crypto, but you could also just do it with a database. It's really nothing new and exciting. So um, first things first is you need to have, uh, you know, know that there's a need out there for the product and that there's a, there's a fit for it. And, uh, you know, the next thing is play into your strengths. Um, you know, whether not every entrepreneur is like the crazy networking salesperson, there's, there's plenty of introverts who've just been very successful at, you know, at just building and managing and scaling. Um, and, uh, you know, the last, uh, the last thing is, is just not running out of money, being well enough capitalized. Um, you know, some of the struggles I had in my mid twenties where it was a, it was a bootstrap business. And um, a piece of advice I got from, from someone who was kind of looking at, you know, just a mentor of mine who was looking at our business. And he was like, everything about your business is great, but you're undercapitalized. And that, that's just a, it's a major risk for, you know, for young up and coming uh, business owners uh, that uh, oftentimes try to scale too quickly. And if you don't have the right backing to scale, um, you know, you could have a great business where everything is going well, but you, if you, you run out of money, you run out of money and then it's game over. So um, it's, 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 it's how, it's probably how a majority of businesses have failed is from being undercapitalized more so than anything else. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I, it's def definitely a different answer than, uh, than I've heard in the, in the past. So um, uh, and it's one thing I think from a, from a consultant's end, working with clients that we talk about a lot is really kind of taking a look at that cash position. Um, do they have the necessary cash there? Because especially, you know, we talk about real estate uh, investors, they want to take that money and immediately deploy it. And sometimes they fail to realize that, you know what, you, you do need to hold some of that back to make sure that you are, uh, that your business has enough cash there to operate and that there is some cash and reserves uh, just in case uh, there, um, there are some unforeseen issues that you run into and to make sure that there is adequate uh, capitalization. I think I remember from your bio read that uh, you went to Northwestern uh, that here, that here just outside of Chicago. Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually did their global MBA program. So okay. I spent some time in Chicago, but I was also able to uh, spend some time in Hong Kong 
in uh, 2018, 2019. So it was an interesting time. The protests were starting. It was before COVID, obviously, but it was still a, a you know interesting time. And then uh, took a venture capital course in Tel Aviv, Israel, which is uh, other than Silicon Valley is one of the top uh, uh, venture capital uh, technology markets in the world. So it was a great year and a, just a great way to get exposure to to you know many different uh, uh, students, investors, professors from all over the world. It was a it was a heck of an experience. Yeah, where I sit, um, my office is just outside of Chicago in Northwest Indiana, and I went to Purdue University, um, so a different Big Ten, uh, different Big Ten school. But I saw that out there. I just wanted to throw that. It was really, really interesting. So, Jack, someone wants to connect with you. Um, I know you have your own podcast. If you want to mention that, um, but also, how can someone get in touch with you if they uh, so choose to do so? Uh, sure. Thank, thank you. So, yeah, we're launching a podcast called the Alternative Investor Mastermind. And uh, we'll talk about a lot of the same things, really all alternative investments, not the traditional stocks, bonds, kind of basic stuff. So it's going to be real estate syndications. Uh, we'll talk crypto, we'll talk options trading, we'll talk uh, real estate syndication deals, uh, really just everything that's a, a little bit niche, that's a, a little bit harder to find quality information. Um, you know, our website is jcaminvestments.com. That's J-K-A-M for J-K Asset Management, jcaminvestments.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We're on LinkedIn. We're on uh, um, pretty much everything but TikTok. I, I know I should. Uh, I, I feel like I'm a bit old for it, but uh, apparently uh, a lot more people are also starting to post on TikTok. So I may have to have to, to, to bite the bullet and uh, get on TikTok as well. Um, love to chat with investors. It's, uh, you know, we just take a consultive approach. Um, you know, I'm often, again, I'm not an official financial advisor or tax planner, but I, I like to dive in and understand someone, you know, as much as, as much as someone's willing to share, you know, I'll say, hey, ask your account, what's your schedule E income for this year? And that basically tells us how much income we may be able to help offset through through depreciation. So we really just love to mastermind. We look at it as like a as a mini mastermind with our our friends and clients and uh, just really enjoy enjoy what we do. So and invite anyone to reach out and just you know sign up for our mailing list, follow us on your platform of choice. Wonderful. We'll put that contact information in the in the show notes as well. You can get in touch with Jack and I encourage you to do something you're interested in uh, as he gets his podcast up and running, support him and listen to his podcast. Jack once again, greatly appreciate appreciate you having you on and uh, look forward to connecting again at some point in the future. Have Absolutely. Thank day. you so much. All right. So this is Josh Belk with the Belkham Business Podcast. Uh, once again, thank you for listening in today. Uh, this particular podcast brought you value. Please consider subscribing. Take care of yourself.